play and stay on Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. Stand up paddleboarding, hiking, great restaurants and breweries. I'll tell you more about your next vacation destination later in the show. Cairo, Seattle. Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal, a show about famous people and the stories behind the foods they love most. Today on the program, chef and TV personality Carla Hall. Carla was a fan favorite on Top Chef. She co-hosted The Chew, and she's a judge on the newish Netflix show, Crazy Delicious. I read a quote from you that I love, and you said, if you're not in a good mood, the only thing you should make is a reservation. That's right. I I truly believe that. I mean, when people get sick from food, they think it's a bad ingredient, but it really is some bad mojo. I mean, it's an honor to cook for people because however you're feeling goes into that food. The food that Carla wants for her last meal is a true American classic. So much so that it's a favorite of many presidents, past and present. Matthew Wendell cooked for President Bush, First Lady Laura Bush, and their family for more than eight years. He'll join the show later to explain what cheeseburger diplomacy is. And I have spent my entire life knowing that I am three quarters Romanian and a quarter Russian. But if you're a descendant of enslaved people, you would have no idea where your people came from. And you hear other people talking about, oh, I'm Irish or I'm Italian or I'm Greek. And you're like, oh, I'm black. Carla Hall says a DNA test forever changed the way she cooks. Later in the show, I welcome the nonprofit Old Ways to talk about their free African heritage cooking classes. But first, my conversation with Carla Hall. Carla Hall took a long, winding path to cooking. She grew up in Nashville, Tennessee, and in high school, she wanted to be an actress. But when she didn't get into the one college drama program that she applied for, she studied accounting instead. But you said that you hated accounting. I did. Once I worked in it, I I didn't like the job. I didn't like corporate America. I didn't like when I would go to sleep looking at a spreadsheet and I was working like 12, 16 hours a day. And it was just crazy. I was like, I hate this. I was afraid to be 40 and hate my job. That was my biggest fear. Carla was working at Price Waterhouse in Florida, one of the biggest accounting firms in the world. But she was doing a little modeling on the side just for fun as a way to meet people. One day she was chatting with a group of her model friends. They said, we're going to Paris. And I was like, oh, my gosh, that sounds amazing. I think I'm going to do that, too. (laughs) So I told my mom, I was like, oh, by the way, I'm going to quit this job and I'm going to Paris. So when I moved there, I had 10 words of French. I took a really quick French class. And girl, I... (laughs) I almost starved. I, I went to the patisserie and I was like, en croissant du beurre, s'il vous plaît. They were like, uh-uh, uh-uh. <laughs> en croissant du beurre. I was like, oh my God, I'm going to starve here. And I started mimicking people like, en croissant du beurre, s'il vous plaît. She's like, uh-uh. <laughs> It's so funny when you watch people in different languages, like you have to watch their mouth because you don't really, it's like a whole different facial expression and like you're showing your teeth and you're not touching your tongue. Exactly. And so to that very point, I started to mimic her. I was like, oh, 
croissant du beurre. <laughs> and I was just turning <laughs> my mouth down. And I finally got the croissant. And then I didn't eat ham, but I could say hamon, so I ate ham. <laughs> As you do. And it was over there that I kind of fell in love with food because I didn't cook at all. While living and working in Paris, Carla was invited to a weekly brunch that was held in the apartment of another model. And all the women that gathered there would cook the foods that they were most homesick for. The woman who was hosting those brunches happened to be from Tennessee. Her name was Elaine Evans. These little brunches reminded me of my granny's Sunday suppers, and it really made me even more homesick, but it was fantastic. And just watching everybody cook, I just didn't know how to cook. So I started going to the American bookstore and buying cookbooks. When Carla moved back to the States, she crashed with her sister and brother-in-law in Washington, D.C. So my sister was pregnant and I said, oh, I cook now. So let me uh, cater your baby shower. So I made a couple things. I made chest pie. I made biscuits with smoked turkey. Now I'm fancy. I did uh, coronation chicken, which was a chicken salad, a curry chicken salad with grapes and almonds. I made, I think, a quiche. So I had made all this food, and the friend who I was living with in Paris, she couldn't come. She was like, oh, can you bring me some leftovers? I'm like, absolutely. She's like, there's nothing to eat around here during our job. So I was like, okay. So the next morning I got up, and my brother-in-law had eaten the leftovers. I mean, no. I know I'm staying for free. But, no, you did not eat the food. I know you're paying the mortgage and everything. So I said, I can't disappoint my friend Patrice. I threw some things together. I was like, what am I going to put it in? And I looked around, and there was a picnic basket. So I get to her office, and she introduces me. It's like, hi, this is my friend Carla. She has a business. I was like, what? In, in my head, I was like, what? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> So they, they were like, um, what's the name of your business? And I looked down at that picnic basket, and I said, the lunch basket. I started divvying out food, and then they got to the question, so when are you coming back? And I said, tomorrow. I'll be <laughs> back tomorrow. So I went back the next day, and then I went door-to-door, -door, hair salons, doctor's offices, barbershops on Kennedy Street, uh, like Kennedy and Fifth in Washington, D.C. And within a week, I had seven clients within two weeks I had 14 and I did that for five years I was the lunch lady I'd never worked so hard in my life I'd never had a day off like in five years oh my gosh Carla eventually went to cooking school and opened her own catering company and in 2008 she got her big break she was cast on top chef and her television career has been rolling along steadily ever since if you have seen Carla on any of the shows that she's been on, you know that she is just a natural entertainer. She's warm and confident and charming and just a little bit kooky. So I was not surprised to hear that Carla approaches strangers on the street to talk about one of her favorite foods. Let's talk about biscuits because I know you love biscuits. Yes. I read that you were doing something called biscuits with strangers. What's that? Oh, so <laughs> I, you know, I lived in New York for a little bit while I was doing the shoots. So I was in New York and DC. And when I would ask somebody, you know, where, where are their good biscuits? They would send me to places. I'm like, these are not good biscuits. Mm -hmm. So I decided to randomly go up to people and say, hi, how are 
are you? But I love talking to strangers anyway. And I'm like, do you know how to make a biscuit? And if they said no, I'm like, can we make biscuits together? Because <laughs> my whole thing was either you needed to know how to make a good biscuit or you needed to recognize one. And, and for me, I want you to recognize one so that when you tell somebody where the good biscuit is, you're not going to send them to that place that doesn't have a good biscuit. <laughs> so Carla would invite herself into these strangers' homes and they would bake biscuits together. There's different kinds of biscuits. What do you like? There are. There are. My biscuits are layered, a little fluffier in the center and crunchy on the outside. Mm-hmm. But really, really tender. I love a crunchy bottom, which is why I put butter on the pan, on the sheet pan. I don't bake them on parchment paper, so I put butter on the sheet pan. And then when I punch them out, I flip them over so that the punched edge, that flattened edge is on top. So they get just a little bit taller. And then there's a little bit of shortening in the mix as well as butter because that shortening makes them nice and crisp. And I use a harder winter wheat versus a softer wheat. So white lily is a softer wheat. And King Arthur is a heartier wheat. So I like a heartier wheat because they brown a little differently. I feel like biscuits are something that people are intimidated by, just like making pie crust. It's one of those like, ooh, I don't know, I'm afraid to make biscuits. No! Okay, so when I taught cooking, I love to teach. I think it's probably because it's like performing. So when I used to teach a cooking class at Sur La Table, when I had the pie class, I would say to people, if you can't make this crust... I promise you, I will go to your house and make it for you. I guarantee you, you can make this crust. That's, that's how comfortable and confident I was that they could make the crust with my method. And that's how I feel with the biscuits. Carla Hall is the queen of soul food. In her book, Carla Hall Soul Food, there are recipes for biscuits and fried chicken, deviled eggs and cornbread. But her last meal doesn't involve any Southern cooking. When we come back, Carla tells us her last meal. If you're a fan of naturally gorgeous, off-the-beaten-path vacation spots with small-town charm, you're going to want to plan a visit to Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, where you can grab a scoop of homemade ice cream and stroll around the adorable European seaside village of Paulsbow, or walk on the ferry in Seattle and get off in downtown Bainbridge Island. And May is the perfect month to visit Bremerton or Silverdale, where you can get out of the city and into the forest in just 15 minutes for a beautiful hike. Enjoy a farm-to-table meal at Bremerton's Restaurant Lola, a Black-owned business. I really need to make the trip out there for their Creole brunch. And in the morning, stop by Saboteur Bakery for croissants that are so flaky and buttery, you'll think you're in Paris. There's also a gorgeous golf course in the middle of the forest, and there are several naval museums in Bremerton. Go to visitkitsap.com slash yourlastmeal to learn more. That's K-I-T-S-A-P. Or you can find a link in the show notes. Play and stay on the Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. If you like listening to Your Last Meal, you might like watching my new TV show, The Nosh with Rachel Bell. We just wrapped up season one, so there are four tasty episodes ready for you to binge at CascadePBS.org. In episode one, I convince an East Coast skeptic that Seattle now has fantastic bagels. And in the season finale, we go truffle hunting just about an hour outside of Seattle. Episodes are a quick bite. 
just eight and a half minutes long. So grab a snack and cozy up with the nosh. Available anytime, anywhere at CascadePBS.org or find a link in the show notes. Carla Hall, what would you like for your last meal? You're going to, this is probably going to surprise you. My last meal, and I haven't changed it, and I've thought about it, is a hamburger. 80-20 beef. It is cooked medium, not medium well, not rare. It is on a brioche bun, lightly toasted with mayonnaise. It has raw onion, pickles, like hamburger dill chips, and cheddar cheese, and a tomato, and shredded lettuce. And on the bottom of the bun, there is also mayonnaise with a little bit of mustard. And I flip my burger over so that the cheese is resting on that bottom bun so that when the tomato is sitting on the burger, it doesn't slide off because that cheese and the wet, I mean, okay. (laughs) And I have, (laughs) I thought about this (laughs) and I cut the, the burger in half and I, While I'm eating one half, I rest the burger down on the cut side so that all of the juice doesn't make my bottom bun soggy because I, I, like, what? Like, no. That is so smart. And then I'm going to have, I mean, girl. So then I want French fries, fresh French fries, uh, double fried with three onion rings because I can't choose why I say or, but you can say and. I want a malted milkshake, vanilla with chocolate syrup. And lemonade, because it's my last meal, I have enough stomach to eat all of this. And I want a piece of lemon meringue pie. Woo, 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 woo. She's <laughs> dancing, everybody. She's dancing. <laughs> I want that right now. I still get excited when I have a good burger. Oh, my gosh. Medium is controversial because all the food snobs like to crawl out of their snobby caves and say the only way that you can have any kind of meat is medium rare. No, no. And I'm going to tell you what, I have judged enough hamburger hops at the uh, Chicago Food and Wine to know that all of those chefs who want the medium rare burger, you can't taste the meat. I I will argue them all day long because when you have a burger and you need that crust and you're putting all of those condiments, if you don't cook that meat you can't taste it and it can't hold up to all of those other things that you're putting on the burger. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. (laughs) Well, I'm sorry because I am one of those snobby people that always orders my burger medium rare. But I mean, if if you go to a place that it doesn't ask you how you want your burger cooked, it's not going to be medium rare. It's going to be medium, medium well. So as long as it's not well done, which is how my mother orders her burgers, can't believe I came out of that woman, I will eat and enjoy a burger. last meal is sentimental. She has happy memories of eating burgers with her grandpa. The first burger that I remember having that I went goo goo gaga over was made by my grandfather, my father's father. And he had this joint and it was this greasy stand. And I remember that burger being so big. It probably wasn't just because I was a kid. But I remember the pickles and the onions, and I just, I remember it being wrapped up in paper, 
it was a wonderful moment with my grandfather and my dad and my sister. And it was just such a, a special memory mm. because we didn't spend a lot of time with him. What did you call your grandpa? I called him granddaddy. But on my mother's side, my maternal grandfather was called Doc because he was a doctor. Oh, so we okay. called him Doc. Everybody calls him Doc. I always think it'd be cool, like, if you're a grandparent to get to pick your own name. Because, like, I feel like people are getting creative now. It's like, my name's Fufu. Call me Nono. Whatever. There's, like, all of these different ones. And I don't want children, but I want to have a name like that. Like, I need to make up my own grandma name. Oh, we can give you a name. We can give you a name. Like, as you get older, your friend's like, can you call me um, whatever? Bunny or something yeah. cute. I don't know. I want to be have a cute grandma name. <laughs> uh, yes. For her last meal, Carla Hall wants a cheeseburger with the cheddar cheese on the bottom bun, cooked medium on lightly toasted brioche with mayo, light mustard, raw onion, pickles, tomato, and shredded lettuce. She wants french fries and onion rings, a vanilla malt with chocolate syrup, lemonade, and... Lemon meringue pie. Lemon meringue pie is an all-American invention. It's credited to a woman named Elizabeth Goodfellow, who is said to have opened one of the country's very first cooking schools in Philadelphia. Goodfellow also owned a popular pastry shop that catered to the wealthy, and she owned this place for like 50 years from 1800 to 1850. So it all started with Goodfellow's famous lemon custard pie that she started topping with fluffy meringue. Meringue had been around since the 1600s, but until now, there was no documentation of anyone putting it on top of a pie. Now, there aren't any concrete records, but historians speculate that since her lemon custard called for 10 egg yolks, she needed to do something with all the egg whites. So she whipped them up into a meringue, and voila, a pie was born. Goodfellow never published a cookbook, but some of her recipes lived on through one of her students, Eliza Leslie, who did publish a cookbook in 1847 called The Ladies' Receipt Book, a useful companion for large or small families. And that book included meringue top pies. In the book, Eliza says, any very nice baked pudding will be improved by covering the surface with a meringue. So that was 1847. And by the 1860s, different versions of lemon meringue pie appeared in all kinds of cookbooks. And lemon custard pie was said to be a favorite of Abraham Lincoln. As a little girl, Carla's favorite lemon meringue pie was made by Edwards a pie you can still buy today in the freezer section at the grocery store. And my grandmother, Freddie Mae, we called her Granny. She would always have this pie for us because we would go up to her house in Lebanon, Tennessee to stay a couple weeks over the summer. And it would be frozen. And we would take this pie and make slices and we would make a lunch. And my sister and I would be like hobos. We would honestly take this lunch, put it in a... Uh, like a little handkerchief? Put it in a cloth and put it on a stick. Yes. And we would go and walk down the railroad track. I don't, crazy. And there was this old couch sitting next to the railroad track. And we would go there and we would have our little lunch. Oh, my God. I wish there was pictures of you on that couch with your sticks and everything. Girl, you know that was before people were taking pictures of their kids. <laughs> <laughs> You would have a painting like in the 1600s of you sitting there. <laughs> Carla's last meal is classic Americana. How much more American does it get than a burger and fries and lemon meringue pie? 
Whether they are Republican or Democrat, it seems modern presidents have one thing in common, a big love for cheeseburgers. Before he went vegan, President Bill Clinton was famous for his love of jalapeno cheeseburgers. President Barack Obama loved burgers so much, the Washington Post published an article in 2014 titled, President Obama and Cheeseburgers, a love story. And fast food loving President Trump has been photographed eating a McDonald's burger on Air Force One. The White House Historical Association recently published a new cookbook called Recipes from the President's Ranch, written by Matthew Wendell. He cooked for President George Bush and his family at Camp David and at their Crawford, Texas ranch the entire time he was in office. And one of the meals he made most at the family's request was cheeseburgers. Mrs. Bush had a very specific way she liked them as well. She liked a smoky cheeseburger. Instead of putting the barbecue sauce on the burger and making it messy to eat, I decided to try the barbecue sauce inside the meat, mixed in the meat. And that way you could get that good smoky barbecue flavor without having the mess of the barbecue sauce running down your fingers. And that's important, especially if you're a world leader and you don't want to seem messy when you eat and you're discussing world problems with the other leaders. So uh, she liked the patty very thin and probably cooked medium as well with very sharp cheddar cheese on top and a whole wheat bun that is toasted. Spread the butter on the bun and toast it uh, with all your lettuce, tomato, onions, pickles. Smoky cheeseburgers weren't just a family meal. This was something they actually served to foreign dignitaries. The idea was it was casual, it leveled the playing field, and it was a food that foreign leaders from around the world got excited to eat because they were eating a burger with the president of the United States of America in America, the land of burgers. I served them a lot at Camp David because they were just, they just meant home to them. And we started serving them to world leaders who would visit for lunch. Back during the administration, Prime Minister Abe came to visit the president at the White House and they bonded over cheeseburgers. It was an AP reporter in Tokyo who wrote this article called Cheeseburger Diplomacy. And he talked about how the two men bonded over a meal of cheeseburgers, American cheeseburgers. Prime Minister Abe was just, I guess, impressed that such a simple meal could bring them together. And so we started having them for lunch for all our visitors because in some way they expected, you know, let's have just a cheeseburger and we can have our feet under the same table, enjoy the same meal and get some diplomacy done. What do you think about Carla's preference of cooking a burger medium? Do you agree that it gets better if you cook it a little longer? I would agree with, for a burger especially, that uh, you get more of the flavor and you get the juiciness. If you want to learn more about the history of the hamburger in the United States, we have a whole episode about that. Go back to my interview with Maria Shriver in 2018 and burger expert George Motz lays it all out. I mean, it came to America. I don't know how far back you want me to go. The farthest. I want it like Jesus eating a hamburger. Okay, I can go back to the Mongols in the 13th century. Want to go there? Yes, please. <laughs> Carla Hall also wants a malt, which has a super interesting history. And uh, we, we already did an episode about that, too. We've covered every food now on this podcast, and it's only been four years. We talk about the history of the malt in a recent interview with the host of the podcast, Spilled Milk. 
with Matthew Amster Burton and Molly Weisenberg. I just have so many happy memories of drinking chocolate malts from Brahms with my dad on a hot, hot, hot and very humid Oklahoma day. And so many people have wanted French fries as a part of their last meal, including one of my favorite guests, my pal Darcy Carden, who played Janet on The Good Place. Humble brag. If we're talking last meal, like I can do whatever the hell I want. So maybe um, like McDonald's fries, <laughs> some sort of salty, crispy, disgusting, like, like comfort. They're really good. That is all of your last meal homework. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast. Follow. Oh, I guess it's not all of your homework. I'm still assigning more homework. All right. Listen to those episodes. Make sure you're subscribed. Follow your last meal on Instagram. Class dismissed. Okay, time for a quick break, but when we come back, Carla Hall's life and cooking was forever changed when she got the results of a DNA test. So you took a DNA test like so many people have been doing, um, and you found out that your ancestors are from West Africa. And it sounds like that really influenced you. So I'm interested how that changed your cooking and also just your, you know, your identity in general, but your identity related to food, finding out where you're from. Yeah. So I did this test with African ancestry about 10 years ago. Obviously, my ancestors are from sub-Saharan Africa because African-American. But, you know, you have no idea what country. And you hear other people talking about, oh, I'm Irish or I'm Italian or I'm Greek. And you're like, oh, I'm black. You know, (laughs) right. So when I did the DNA test and I got the results, I cried. It was really emotional for me because even though I'm not adopted, there's a part of me that feels adopted because how far can I go back? And not only was it the Yoruba people, the Yoruba tribe from Nigeria and the Bubi people from Bioko Island. So not only those countries, but then the tribe. So it was it was really emotional. And I just started digging and finding it out. And then there was Portuguese and Spanish. And those uh, pieces of information really informed my latest cookbook because I really wanted to focus on soul food. And and I didn't do that journey right away because I was still in this journey of trying to find myself in food. And I was still kind of running away from soul food, you know, and I didn't want to be pigeonholed until I was like, no, I, I love being black and I love my heritage and I really want to find out more. I have to admit, I'm embarrassed to admit that I hadn't thought about until recently the fact that the slave history denied all of these people of knowing what their heritage is. You're right. Like not knowing what country you're from, not being able to go back in your family tree and hearing you say that, you know, the tribes. That's interesting to me, because is that something they can tell by your blood that by tribe? I didn't I never I don't totally understand the DNA test down to the nitty gritty. Right. Well, African ancestry is able to do that because they hold the largest database of sub-Saharan DNA of anybody. So it's not like 23andMe, and this is not a commercial, but every company has a database that they have been building, right? I went to African Ancestry because I knew this about that company, and I wanted to learn in a granular way 
where my ancestors were from. And the beautiful part when I learned about Bioko Island and Michael Twitty, who did the cooking gene, he's from the Booby people from Bioko Island. It's a tiny island off the coast of Cameroon and only three slave ships left there to go to Virginia, only three. So if I go to the African-American Museum and I look at all of these ships that are listed, there is one of three that some of my ancestors were on. And that's powerful. I wanted to learn more about the foods that Carla's ancestors would have eaten. So I got in touch with Old Ways, a Boston nonprofit focused on healthy, sustainable eating based on cultural food traditions. They offer free cooking classes all over the country and teach people how to cook dishes native to regions like Africa, Latin America, and Asia, using whole foods and lots of indigenous vegetables. Old Ways says Black Americans between 18 and 49 are twice as likely to die from heart disease than whites. So they're trying to shift people away from a Southern diet, which has lots of fried foods and sugary drinks, to an African heritage diet packed with greens and seafood. Old Ways curriculum coordinator Sarah Anderson says they even developed their own food pyramids specifically for different regions of the world. Here she describes the African Heritage Diet Pyramid. The base of the pyramid, it depicts healthy lifestyles and a physical activity, um, sharing meals with family, just that interaction. And then moving up, you have the next tier, which is the leafy greens that make up the actual base of the pyramid due to, you know, historic and nutritional significance, because we have a whole chapter on leafy greens within our curriculum. And it's my absolute favorite chapter because collard greens is just, you know, a tiny point, but there's so many different aspects to it. And so that's why it's really important in the pyramid. And um, moving upward, we have fruits, peanuts and nuts, herbs and spices, beans and peas, vegetables, and then there's whole grains and tubers. As you start going upward, then it goes more towards our protein. So you'll see the seafood, poultry, and then at the very, very top of the pyramid is our sweets. And that's reserved for special occasions. Old Ways has created um, several different pyramids for our different heritage diets because um, one size doesn't fit all. America is a country of immigrants. I love that because I always get kind of annoyed when, I don't know, I guess with magazines or like interviews with chefs and they're like, you know, what are five things everyone should have in their fridge? And I'm like, why should everyone have the same five things? It's ridiculous. Like you buy different foods based on your culture or you eat differently. Like, I just don't like this idea that everybody should know how to make a roast chicken. It's like, no, they don't. Not everyone needs to know how to make roast chicken. Like if I grew up in the Caribbean islands, I may not know a lot about the Mediterranean diet. And so it's like when you go on, you know, healthy eating habits and it's like implement more feta cheese and these ingredients that are foreign to me, it's not going to be sustainable. And so that's why it's really important to focus on, you know, the cultural heritage diet. Carla's ancestors came from Bioko Island, which is off the coast of Cameroon, and the Yoruba tribe in Nigeria. So I was wondering if in your recipe Rolodex, if you had any recipes from either of those regions. It's so interesting. I was like looking into their history, and it's really like a group of native tribes that were kind of taken over by the Spaniards. And so when you look at their 
architecture and even their recipes. You notice a lot of Spanish influence. It's a wealthy nation of West Africa, actually, because they're known for their um, oil industry. And so when we were looking into recipes, um, one that came across was a chicken and peanut sauce with rice. Some other people use um, meat or grilled fish. And what they do is they'll add um, crushed pumpkin seeds. And another one that stood out was the Guinea fowl paella. As you probably know, paella is, uh, you know, from Valencia, Spain, and they kind of have their own um, make on that. And it's the Guinea fowl paella. And I think that would be a really cool recipe. I personally have never tried it, but now I want to (laughs) after reading into it. If you're interested in taking classes with Old Ways, I'll tell you how you can get in touch at the end of the episode. When Carla was talking about her last meal, she mentioned that she wants a vanilla malt with chocolate syrup. And it turns out Carla loves malt powder. Over the course of quarantine, she has found new uses for it. She's been putting it in her pancakes and in her cereal milk. I'm not making banana bread. I'm not making sourdough. I'm going to pimp my cereal. I'm tired of cooking (laughs) So I started, I would add malted milk powder to my milk, right? Make it like jazzy. It could be chocolate. It could be strawberry. It could be vanilla. What are your favorite cereals, especially with the malted milk powder in there? Or like combos, if you're doing like chocolate, vanilla, strawberry milk, what goes with what cereal? Okay, okay, okay. (laughs) So I would get like total cereal or brand cereal. So I would take these flakes and I hate when the flakes get soggy. I don't like soggy cereal. So I started treating them like granola. I would take butter and like a ginger simple syrup that I made and salt. And I would toss the flakes in this and put it in the oven for like 15 minutes until it crisped up. And then I would toast some almonds and I would plump up my raisins, like some kind of pumpkin seeds. And then I would do the vanilla malt for that in that milk. And so that would be one. For the strawberry, I like strawberries and cream. So I got those dehydrated strawberries, the vanilla powder in the milk. That's what I put the marshmallows in that one. Fresh strawberries. Oh my gosh, that's a good one. I've played with peanut powder and malt in the milk with a little chocolate. So it's Reese's. I, this is the best thing I've heard in a long time. I am wrapped. I'm like, because mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> people use cereal as a lazy, quick food, but you're turning it into like a whole cooking project. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm like, I am truly wanting to pimp my cereal. And that was Carla Hall's last meal. Go to CarlaHall.com to see everything she's working on. Her newest show on Netflix is called Crazy Delicious. And it's so much fun. Have you watched it, Laura? Yeah, because you told me to. Oh, yeah. yeah. I give you homework, too. The Pizza Volcano is the absolute highlight. The pizza, yes, the, the pizza, pizza volcano. volcano. Yeah. And when the contestants gather their food for a challenge, they go into this food forest and the eggs are in a cute little nest and they get to actually like pick vegetables out of the ground. It's so cute. Thanks to Matthew Wendell. You can pick up his new book. It's called Recipes from the President's Ranch. And that's how you can get the Bush's favorite burger recipe and a recipe for his famous fried chicken. Thanks to Sarah Anderson from Old Ways. If you're interested in one of their free cooking classes, you can go to oldwayspt.org. I looked on the website. They don't have anything currently listed, but Sarah says you can send them an email through the website or follow Old Ways on social media to get updates. 
And make sure you're following us on social media, specifically Instagram, where your last meal podcast. Please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you're listening on Spotify, you can easily share an episode on Instagram with a single click. All of these things are easy, free ways to support the show and tell your friends. This episode was produced by Laura Scott. Hey. <laughs> wow. We're keeping that. That was a real panic We're move. Keeping that. <laughs> hey. <laughs> and me. Hi. Theme music by Prom Queen. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is your last meal. Carla, 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 Carla. <laughs> Biscuits. <laughs> Biscuits. I don't know. It just sounds weird. Meringue, meringue. Woo. So cuckoo. The whole time that the bush, that the bush was in office. <laughs> We just call him the Bush. <laughs> You're on a first name basis or last name basis. Last name. And like, is it the young one, the old one? I don't know. If you want to learn more about the history of the hamburger in the United... Did I say hamburger like a baby? <laughs> if you want to learn more about the you hamburger... You say it like the Pink Panther. What do you say? Hamburger. Hamburger. If you want to learn more about the history of the hamburger... It's like so much talking in this one. Ugh. Someone else do the talking. Tired of my voice. I guess I should have gotten to a different profession. <laughs> yeah, that seems like a, a, a real stumbling block for just, this industry. I can't hear myself talk anymore. I don't want to hear it. It's been a long time. 40 and a half years of this. Sh- All right.